Hello, this is Michael Stone, the host of Conversations. We're committed to bringing you leading-edge thinkers in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, and spiritual fulfillment. On our program, we look for positive solutions to local and global issues that leave you touched, moved, and inspired to action. Our weekly guests include local and global experts and concerned citizens working together to heal the wounds that separate, alienate, and marginalize people. Welcome to Conversations. This is your host, Michael Stone, and I am so honored to have Dr. Sarah King on our show today. Dr. King is a UCLA-trained political and learning scientist and neuroscientist, social entrepreneur, public speaker, yoga and meditation teacher, and she has over 20 years of experience as a research scientist and specializes in the study of the relationship between mindfulness, community healing, medicine, and social justice. She's also the founder of Mind Heart Consulting, offering workshops, seminars, and evidence-based research projects based on the framework she developed called the Science of Social Justice, a way of both studying, researching, teaching, facilitating, and healing individuals and communities with their dis-ease of othering. Informed by an interdisciplinary framework that merges medical and cultural anthropology, political science, ethnic studies, feminist and queer studies, interpersonal neurobiology, cognitive and effective neuroscience, psychology, sociolinguistics, and public health. She is wonderful, brilliant, and I am so thrilled and honored to have you, Sarah. Welcome to Conversations. Thank you so much for having me, Michael. It is absolutely my honor to be here with you today. Yeah. So I've been so looking forward to this conversation, and I, I want to call this Get Real About Race. And I'm saying that as a white, privileged, middle-class, educated male. And I want to say that you have absolute permission to call me on any hidden stereotypes or unexamined assumptions that I might come up with mm. because I'm here to learn from you. And I know the people listening to this show are really interested in learning and growth and mindfulness. So I'm just so honored uh, to have you here to, to join us. Yeah, well, thank you. I mean, first of all, for that incredible moment of vulnerability and also for grounding into your identity before we even get into the nuts and bolts of this call. I just think that the way that you're setting a container for us to be authentic and free with one another is something that I'm really tuned into right now. And, you know, sometimes as I'm just like navigating in the world and I'm running into people just in coffee shops or at my daughter's school, just people who I may or may not ever see again, I have these moments of longing where I really wish that I could connect with, well, who are you really? Mm-hmm. You know, I might know your name and I might, I probably have this like pro- proliferation of assumptions coming to my mind about, you know, what race this person is and what gender they are and what their class background is and all the different narrative forms that arise in the mind. 
and I'm delighted when I'm proven wrong, mm. actually. T.S. Eliot has a poem where he says, putting on a face to meet the faces that we meet. And just you reminded oh. me of that because we are wearing these faces, these identities, which is truly not who we are, but we are so locked into it. And I love the term you used and use called othering, because yeah. I think that's a good place to start. You know, I was in a two-year postgraduate course on international organizational systems development. Mm -hmm. We had 42 people from 22 countries. And there were two black South African women and, and then another, my roommate was a white male South African. And, and one woman for two years, I would do all of my best listening and really opening, trying to understand. And she was always on me and she says, you just don't understand. And I would repeat the words exactly mm. how it was, but here's a woman that's come out of apartheid. And after two years, I said at the end, you know, you're right, I don't, I've tried to understand, but there's uh, no way that I can see the world through your eyes. And I realized that and I thanked her for always reminding me that I don't know what she's experiencing. Yes. And I'm even, you know, I'm, I'm so appreciative that you're sharing this with me right now. And the word that I'm so present to that you just used is understand. And I wonder, in my mind, I had an immediate embodied response to that word understand. Mm -hmm. So the way that I'm relating to it, and you can correct me if I'm, you know, if I'm projecting or if I'm incorrect, was that perhaps she was perceiving you as having a cognitive relationship <laughs> or attempting to cognize about her experience whether it was being racialized or um, the experience of apartheid or whatever the specificities of that embodied trauma was that she was carrying. Yeah. yeah. And I hear that word understand. I think of the belly and the brain. Yes. So perfect. I love that because as you were saying that, I was thinking about, wait a minute, standing under, standing mm. under what? Standing under the mind. Yeah. And entering the heart and the belly wisdom, which we don't yes. do. And I think most of the time, what prevents us besides the conditioning and everything mm -hmm. is the fear that we have of other. Yeah, exactly. So perhaps in that call, when she was saying, you don't understand me, maybe there was a longing underneath that for you to feel her. Mm-hmm for you to intuit, have an intuitive relationship with whatever it was that she was transmitting. Yeah, I'm, I'm really fascinated by the process of othering, but not as something, again, that is occurring. Because, we, again, we have the narratives around othering that are arising within the mind. And there's words that are coming to us at all hours of the day that are attempting to categorize and constrain and describe and really um, keep us safe. You know, that whole ego function, the ego is there and the inner child and it's, and it's scanning the world and it's looking around and it's trying to like typify people and categorize them all in the attempt 
to feel safe mm -hmm. and to feel like we're capable of surviving. Um, but I'm most interested in othering from the point of view of the nervous system and the trauma response mm -hmm. and the manner in which our trauma response is actually incredibly intelligent in the way that we navigate and move in the world. And so our trauma response is going to arise in the form of, you know, maybe it's freeze, maybe it's flight, maybe it's fight. And there's a book out there right now called My Grandmother's Hand. Mm -hmm. I, I, yeah, I believe his name is Rezma Menaki. He discusses the fifth nervous system response, which is annihilate. Mm -hmm. And then he really gets into the nitty gritty of how this shows up, particularly in relationships of communities of color and this increasingly militarized police response. Yeah. Yeah. And he's really calling to question, you know, in these moments, in these hundreds of reports that we hear every year of these human beings whose designated job is to police and to enforce structures of power with weapons of death that they have been trained to use with force. What exactly is happening in these moments, particularly with unarmed men of color, black men, black women, or brown men and brown women, and the narrative that we hear around, well, why did this person perish? Why was there this moment of gun violence that ended this person's life? And over and over, we hear these police officers say, well, I was afraid for my life. I was scared, I was threatened. So there's something clearly that is arising in their trauma response, in their nervous systems that I believe belongs, yes, on some level to this socio and cultural and historical moment in time. Mm -hmm. But I think it is also really deeply intergenerational, this fear. What I'm thinking as you're saying that is, but that's an exact mirror of what's going on. For instance, my friend, I think she's in Portland actually now, a beautiful black singer and uh, teacher of music. And she was telling me this a few years ago, actually, the phenomena which probably none of our white listeners would know, the phenomena of BWD. Here you've got the fearfulness that's been handed down, expanded on driving while black. Yeah. Driving while black. How many white people actually know what that is? You know, the fear that's there. So you've got really, in some sense, you've got the same issue, different history, different structure, but meeting up. But one is armed and dangerous for the most part, and maybe some, sometimes the other is, but that's usually not the case of the real violence that's taking place. Yeah, yeah. So how can we see that in each other? Mark Nepo has been on, he's a regular on my show and one of my favorite people in the universe. I love poets, so I have to throw in a poet all the time. <laughs> and Mark was talking about the two tribes 
there's the tribe that says, you're different, go away. And mm. then there's the tribe that says, you're different, come teach me. So mm -hmm. how in your work, because you're a teacher, you're a scientist, you're someone who is, has created a field called the science of social justice, how do you bring that kind of recognition of the connection in the separation? Mm. Well, I really love the way that you're framing it as the connection within the separation. Because what I'm hearing is some really deep wisdom in that. I'm hearing the wisdom of both and. Mm -hmm. So there's the wisdom of the fact, and, and this is getting a little bit to a conversation that you and I were having a little bit earlier on today about the difference as well as the relationship between the absolute and the relative. Mm -hmm. So in the absolute, and I actually have a wonderful example around this that leads back to our conversation around policing. I think I may have told you that I'm in a Dharma teacher training right now at Spirit Rock, and it has completely rocked my world. Um, there's about a hundred of us who are in this program, and I think that we all came in with the misconception, you know, that we're all here and we're advanced Dharma practitioners and, you know, with extensive silent retreat practice and we've proven ourselves to be leaders within some facet of the Dharma world. And so in spite of the fact that you're bringing a hundred different human beings from all over the country and the world into a room to do intensive practice in the Dharma and in mindfulness, well, shouldn't we all be so spiritual and mindful with one another and instantly get along? And, an actual, and, and the actuality of that was that initially there was a bit of a community implosion. Perhaps this could actually be because of the training and embodied awareness that we had all been involved in prior to coming. But we took a deep dive into race on day two and it did not, it got messy. It got messy really fast. And it didn't matter how embodied we were or how mindful we were. The fact of the matter was that there were these really rich complexities that we were all arriving with from the causes and conditions that we're digesting and we're metabolizing from society. And it started to, the entire process started to implode in on itself mm -hmm. and then there was this really gorgeous messy moment where a very famous professor was brought into the room and he's been practicing the buddha dharma since the 60s and he has a macarthur genius award and he's a philosopher and all the accolades followed him and we were all sitting there and we were so excited to hear what he had to say and instead of lecturing in front of us, and he's, I, I may add, he's an elderly African-American man in his 70s. And he said, I actually want to make room to hear, how did you all come to your Dharma practice? How did you all come to the Dharma to be leaders and teachers in this field? And I'm going to open up the space for this conversation, and then I'm going to respond to it. So at one point in the conversation, he drops this gem. <clears throat> and he says, I want you all to know that race is nothing but an illusion. And then he keeps on talking. 
and there's like a ripple effect throughout the room. And there's an understanding that he is making a statement that's coming from the absolute and the absolute sense of things in the universe, on the quantum level, in the manner at which none of us are separate and we are completely interconnected and interdependent. Race ain't a thing. However, in the relative, when I put my butt in a car and go to drive to work or go to any of the many places that I have to go to throughout my day and I see a cop car drive by me, I have an electric, exactly, lightning bolt of fear go through my body. And I start thinking things like, where are my hands on the steering wheel? But where is my cell phone? Could my cell phone be mistaken as a gun? In what way could my actions be weaponized and interpreted as violent in this moment? And I could go from just driving to the grocery store to my life being ended in an instant. And it goes through my mind constantly, constantly, all day, every day, in spite of knowing that on an absolute level, that police officer and I, we are completely one and we are the same. And so there was an elderly African-American woman who stood up and she said something like, well, I have really been contemplating the first time that I ever learned about black death at the hands of the police, unarmed black death. And this was in the 1960s. And I first began to hear about this happening to my brothers in the street, black men. And she said, and then I started hearing about it happening with women, unarmed women. And I was truly scared for my life at this point because she realized that gender wasn't going to protect her from that reality. And she said to this professor, I just want you to contextualize for me how this statement, race is an illusion, this absolute statement matters to the relative reality of me and the fear and the aggravation and the trauma of 400 years of enslavement and death that I carry in my body. Please, just... What do I do with that here in the Buddha Dharma? And his answer to hear his response. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I had to leave a moment of like palpable silence so that you could brace yourself for this. Right. He said, well, you know, if I live in the past, then I am 33% of myself and my being in the past. And then if I live in the future, then another 33% of myself is living in the future. And do you know what that means? That only leaves 33% of myself to be here now. And wouldn't that be a shame? Next question. (laughs) And we were like, whoa, it was like we had all been like catapulted out into like outer space. And I felt myself leaving my body. And I was like, no, no, no. No, 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 no. <laughs> you cannot. There is 
something of a really primal travesty and a traumatization that occurs when people are dealing with embodied and lived experiences and wounds and truths that they really are calling out for tools. You know, how do I live honestly, honestly with this? How can I possibly carry this pain with compassion? Yeah. In a way that will allow me to generate the creativity and the love that is necessary to will a new future into being. And that was a lost opportunity in that moment, in my mind, for him to really connect with this woman's heart and with her pain. And ultimately, with the pain of othering that is really dismantling something essential at the core of our entire human society right now. I love the way you frame it with the relative and the absolute because it allows us to a little bit stand back and really be able to embrace, and trauma is such a huge part, all those dissociated parts of ourselves, all the things that we've pushed away in fear that have created an identity. And in the absolute world, what he's saying is brilliant, but how many people even get to the level of meditating where they truly can witness mm. as opposed to being the identity looking at itself, right? Yeah. To be able to step into that spacious awareness, that stillness that is really the intersection of soul and spirit and pierces through the story. And yet, yeah, the triggering that is the part that we really need to be working with the healing. All that suppressed stuff that's in our body. I teach five rhythms. You know, I worked with Gabrielle Ross. She was my first shamanic teacher for 40 years. And the importance of that and the never-endingness of it too. That's another part, really something to me. People think of awakening as a place to get to mm. rather than a process that will never end until every human and every species is connected fully and recognizing at that level, then we won't need to talk or have language even. And who knows, who knows where we'll be at that point, but you are articulating something so fantastic that I really want to hone in on. I'm, see I'm really tuning into this wisdom of the both and that you're bringing, and you're also mentioning the complexities of the Bodhisattva path. And so really getting us out of this like outcome-based thinking, which is tough for me as a scientist, right? Very, very tough to get out of this lens of, you know, total objectivity as if that's something that can ever be achieved. It's like it can be crazy making sometimes, but we have to, you know, you have to work with the master's tools to dismantle the master's house, I've been told. Mm. And so when really looking at this bodhisattva path as something that is never to be conceptualized as me, myself, and I, singular, the individual reaching an endpoint of a state of enlightenment in where I will somehow become far above and beyond all the problems of this world. 
No, the real bodhisattva path being, in my mind at least, more of a we and an us. And if you want to be really non-binary with it, because I, I identify as a non-binary being, the they and the them verb-like processes, as Dan Siegel would say, right. of really reaching into the plane of possibility on the quantum level. You know Dan loves to talk about this, and I know you love to go there. We're going to go to the quantum, right? <laughs> and to say that so long as we are in this process of embodied healing together, we will know for ourselves when we have gotten to that point. And I'm going to, I'm going to use a phrase that I just heard. I just heard Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams speak a couple of nights ago. And oh my goodness, it was like, just, just shockwaves of knowing through my heart and through my mind and through my gut. And she said, we have got to get to a place that we have never been before. And yet, this is the place where we are from. The place that we are going, we have never been before. And yet, it is where we are all from. Yeah, brilliant. I was like, oh, <laughs> that is the bodhisattva path. And that is also, in my mind, really central to how it is that I'm looking at social justice and the science of social justice. Because I realized, you know, in the first couple of weeks that I moved here to Portland, something happened, something I, I was witness to that I had never been before personally. There was a march of hundreds of white supremacists just a few blocks away from my home that I had nearly moved into. And now while I was, I, I, I'm very well aware of white supremacist activity, I, I had never had it en masse so close to my home and my body and my being. And I was terrified for my life. I thought they're marching. Well, well, what does that even, what does that even turn into? Rioting? Do they enter people's homes? Will they be dragging people who they identify as people of color, queers out of their home? I mean, how far does this go? You know, I was in a panic for the first time in my life. And people around me in Portland, they, they said to me with, with a certain degree of nonchalance that I found rather frightening. And they were like, oh, you know, ever since the recent presidential election, this has been happening all the time every two, two or three months or so, like this is the new norm. White supremacists descending upon the city to declare that people like myself should not exist. And I was like, huh. It, it reminds me of Kristallnacht. Mm. Just snuck up. Here were people, yes, they, they had been discriminated in, living in the ghettos and things. Oh, there was this guy named Hitler that was coming into power. And the next thing you know, they were pulling people out of the houses and killing them. Yeah. Don't think that that can't happen here, people. I just want to say we are on a very slippery slope right now. Yeah. Why your work is so important the science of social justice. I'd like you to expand, maybe actually go back a little bit to your early research and your PhD work 
yeah. where as a, a mindfulness teacher, a yoga teacher, and you working on your dissertation, started looking at this. And uh, the one experiment that I thought was so revealing was the impact on people of color doing yoga, the third of the group, and then the third of the neutral. And I'm particularly interested in the third that felt they were being forced into a structure that was not theirs. And I think that's really important. That's the most important part to me. Yeah. Thank you so much for bringing my dissertation work into this conversation. Yeah. So these were middle schoolers who had been newly introduced to yoga and meditation in the context of their school. But I think what's really key to know about their experience and for any people who are really interested, who maybe, you know, you're a yoga and mindfulness practitioner or teacher yourself, you're passionate about youth, passionate about youth of color because you recognize um, their very unique vulnerabilities in the world. Maybe you've thought about developing a program and bringing it into a school. Well, what was really key about how this intervention got into their school was that the students themselves were not given a choice of whether to participate. So it was integrated into the health curriculum of the school. And what this meant was you either take the yoga and meditation or you fail out of health. That is setting up a condition right there for the very instruction of these practices, which are so sacred, to be punitive in their intentionality, right? So that was the first mistake. So I interviewed a group of students, and you're right. A th for a third of these students, it was completely revolutionary in the most positive of ways. And it, what I noticed was that it really transformed their relationships with the people living with them in their homes. And I'll say the people living with them in their homes because these were students who were exceptionally poor. They were below the poverty line and many of them had experienced recent homelessness because of Hurricane Sandy. So oftentimes they were actually displaced and they were just, they were living in homes with the parents of their friends or with other relatives or they just didn't necessarily have access to parents within their home. And they began to have, for the first time in their lives, an embodied experience of well-being being, really connecting, as you know, the body and the breath and with the sacred in the space of the classroom, which was not something that they expected. And these very organic changes around emotion regulation um, and interpersonal relationships solidify and began to emerge. Then there were a third group of students who I interviewed and their response to the whole intervention was, nah, take it or leave it. And I was like, hmm, all right, that's interesting. Take it or leave it. The third group of students actually began to maraud. Literally, they formed a faction, you might call, of sorts. And they started circulating a petition around the school to get the intervention thrown out they were getting signatures, they were marching, they were rebelling, they were walking out. I mean, 
it was absolutely like for me, um, a shock to my system, to my own naivete. I was like, what do you mean you don't love yoga and meditation? This is just everything about it is so wonderful. And then it clicked for me. These are all students of color. And the interventionists themselves, the people who were designing the program and who were implementing it were primarily white identified. And at no point in that program did the manner of the yoga and meditation instruction ever allow them to critically engage with the very real embodied reality of the oppression that they were facing. The oppression wasn't just out there in the world, in the principal's office, by the teachers, by the institutions of the government. Yes, they were all very aware of that, but they were carrying it inside of themselves. And it was actually beginning to unfurl this trauma through the practice of yoga and meditation. And they weren't being given any wise tools to navigate that. So of course they were like, Responding as though this yoga and meditation was a process of colonization, as though their their fundamental agency as human beings was being co-opted. Mm. Of course there was a revolution. Of course they rebelled. So I was relating these student experiences to the science of social justice framework that I developed. And even to the story that I was telling you about the white supremacists marching through Portland, because I realized that the kind of organized rioting and rebelling that these students were engaged in in their schools, nowadays, this act, these acts of social justice are being conflated in many circles in the media as being akin to and the same thing as the activities of the ever rising far, far right and white supremacists. Mm -hmm. So social justice and all of the healing, which it has always stood for intergenerationally all over the planet is now being conflated with violence and hate and death. And I was like, oh, uh-uh, that's not what social justice is really about. To me, social justice and well-being are one and the same thing. You can't have one without the other. If there is any single group of people who are experiencing marginalization, whether this marginalization is arising from the macro level, from governments and institutions, from the MISO level, and that could be on the level of communities and the ways in which they are structured around resources and access, or on the micro level, which is more on uh, the level of interpersonal relationships and maybe micro aggressions, all of these experiences, lived experiences are stored within the nervous system. And so in order to restore social justice, yes, we need to look at the macro and the MISO level of things. We need to have people who are working on institutional change, on governmental change, and on community change. But we also have to shift the ways in which we are relating to one another interpersonally 
And also this is where the contemplative becomes key and spirituality becomes key. We have to shift the way in which we're relating to ourself, to the self, to the heart. Mm. You know? Yeah. That to me is what the science of social justice is about, is that we have all of these different fields of science that you so beautifully mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, right? From neuroscience and psychology, all different sorts of health sciences, everything that we know in medicine. And then we have everything that we know from the social sciences and from education. And we can really weave together all of this rich and gorgeous data of what we understand about what supports well-being in our society And we can merge that with what we now know about how yoga and meditation, for instance, support the well-being of the heart and the mind. And then from there, we can construct an entirely different narrative about what it means to be compassionate to ourselves and to one another in order to dismantle this manic addiction to othering that we find ourselves ensconced in at the moment. Yeah, well said. There's a lot of boulders in the road. I'm reminded of many years ago, I was in the military in Korea. Wow. And there were some spies that were digging up this super highway that the United States was building across Korea. They were building this super highway, you know, beautiful black top constructed and putting all this millions of dollars in there. And then these spies were coming at night and they were sabotaging and they dig big holes all over the road. So they sent out the military to stay in the bushes and watch what's going on here. About midnight, one o'clock in the morning, all these little mamasans come out with their little pots and they're digging up the road and putting it in the pot and taking it home. They didn't have any heat. They couldn't cook their food. But we're building a super highway across Korea. Now, this is very much akin to what we're talking about in trying to force particular ideology, even though we think it's a positive, something that people really need. But the people are hungry. The people are scared. The people don't have enough. They live in fear of getting shot and losing their children. Yeah. That's not in the institutionalized educational system or any other, the monetary system. So I'd like to hear your thoughts about embedded racism. We're both really interested in the languaging and the narrative and the unspoken part that's embedded in the way we see the world and Mm -hmm. view the world and the language that reflects these really, to come back to that place, they reflect a, a traumatized culture that has not come to grips with slavery, hasn't come to grips with native genocide, hasn't come to grips with dropping atomic bombs on people. We have not dealt with that. And that is in the collective psyche. And until we own that and actually feel that and recognize the perpetration to the human soul, I think we're not going to make much progress in moving those boulders out of the road. Your yeah. thoughts about that? Yeah, I mean, that 
the story that you introduced is so powerfully demonstrative of, you know, on a really broad scale, the issues that we're facing right now. And I did have two particular thoughts that came to mind in terms of the, the specificities around languaging and the embodied experience. One of the things, two of the terms that came to mind, the first being W.E.B. Du Bois coined the term double consciousness. And I'm sure you're familiar with this, but for all of our listeners who may not be, double consciousness was a term that he used to describe the multiplicity of awareness that an African-American person has to carry within their awareness. And so we are conscious of ourselves as Americans. And when I say Americans, we always have to be conscious of how it is that our fellow white identified Americans are perceiving us at all times, because this is paramount to our survival. Just like what I told you about what happens when I'm driving in my car and I see a police officer and I go through this total trauma response. It's very unconscious and subconscious where it's like, is there literally any way in which I could be perceived by this officer as being threatening right now, even though all I'm doing is driving my car, right? And then we also have a consciousness of ourselves as black. And we have to carry this double consciousness. It's paramount at all times. And it is really embedded into how we witness ourselves, how we carry ourselves, how we language ourselves, every single thing about our being, and there is no other choice around it. If you are someone who is visibly ethnic, I must say, because there are those who are called white passing, who are actually, you know, in ethnic heritage, technically because of the one drop rule. We all remember that. If you had one drop of black blood, going back to the days of slavery, then you were considered to be black. So there are a lot of people out there walking in society who would have been considered to be black 150, 200, 250 years ago, but they are now white passing and thus are the recipients of white privilege. But that's a whole nother conversation. But what I want to say about this double consciousness I don't want it to be relegated to something that is just about vision and perception. It is about embodied awareness as well. It is about relationship and how it is that at all times, someone like myself is forced to actively, I am forced to police myself and to surveil myself and my actions and my behavior. And like, for instance, what kind of tension am I carrying in my face? Does that tension that I'm carrying in the muscles of my face make me look angry, like an angry black woman, like a threatening black woman, right? What kind of trauma am I carrying in my bones and in my muscles? And if I were a man, and particularly, there's a lot of social psychology that has reported on the relationship between the darkness of the color of one's skin, one's gender, whether you're male or you're female, and your height, and how you are then perceived, the darker you are, 
if you are darker skinned and you are male and you are tall, those are the percentage points at which the likelihood that you will have a violent encounter of the, with the police, whether that be to be stopped and frisked or arrested or thrown in jail or death arises, right? So there is some, there are some really complex embodied sociocultural politics that are at play at all times within the embodiment, the embodied experience, and I can only speak to you for myself, of being Black in this country. And so this really brings me to something that I'm very curious about, work that I really want to do in terms of where I think the science of social justice can be helpful. And it reminds me of something that Rev. Angel said a couple nights ago that I was so grateful for. And she said that race in this country is right now mostly viewed as a problem of people of color. It's the black person's problem. It's the Latinxes person's problem. It's the indigenous person's problem, Asian person's problem, da, 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 da. And so what is really key in this word problem? It's a trauma that is being carried in our bodies. And then this trauma is resulting in different psychological and behavioral, to be scientific about it, shifts and changes throughout the course of every day. And it is deeply contributing to disease in this country. Just to give one profound example, if you are a person of color in this country, and this has to do with the research that I do in neuroscience at Oregon Health Science University right now, if you are a person of color, you are more than twice as likely to develop Alzheimer's, twice, than your white counterparts. And this is a health epidemic, as we all know, with the aging of the baby boomer generation that has the potential to completely break our healthcare system. We are not set up to manage this. Yeah. Why is this that people of color should be developing this, this disease at such a staggering rate? It's the experience of stress, mm -hmm. stress and trauma within the body. And one of the major predicators of stress within the body of people of color is the experience of both externalized racism, racism within our institutions and that, that emerges within our relationships, but it is also internalized racism. The ways in which we have been taught to direct hatred, the hatred that we have learned from society into our own hearts and minds and to believe this as truth. And that is having a direct impact on our health and on our well-being, on our quality of life and our capacity to age and die with dignity. There's so much, Sarah, in what you're saying. We're getting close to the end of our time. And I, I want to say something as that white privileged guy, because when, when you said that measurement of the height and the blackness. Mm -hmm. I could feel in my body the fear rising in proportion to what you're talking about. I have that in my body. I, mm. know that I, could, I could feel it there. And it brought up another little bit uh, 
different place, but something I think is really important. I have a sense from working with a lot of people that we all have an essential question that comes from probably our first trauma. Now, I know working with a lot of white folks that those essential questions are things like, will you love me? Am I safe? A lot, you know, you can think of many, many different questions that we have. Yeah. I believe that that's also true in people of color and all people, that there are essential questions that are unanswered, that shape our lives and the way we meet the world. Absolutely. And I would add one that Rev Angel brought up and that I also engage in a lot in my work. And you and I had a lovely conversation about your ancestry before we got on this call. And I absolutely love connecting with people along those lines. Ancestry is something that we all share. You're in a body, you got ancestors. And it doesn't matter what different identifiers have been attached to you by society, you know, those roots back to the earth are always there in all of us. But particularly, I would say for all white identified listeners, I would say that an essential question is, what was the very first moment in my life that I was racialized. When did I learn I was white? And not to just ask this question as like a cognitive appraisal coming from a place of memory from the head, but to take this to the brain and the heart and the brain in the gut and to feel into that place. What did it feel like? What were the sensations? I can feel. Surprising? I know that place. I remember that place. I was just barely five in San Francisco on the bus. Okay. And I saw this black man yeah. behind a beautiful older black gentleman. And I said to my father, Daddy, why is that man dark or black? Yeah. And I felt my father stiffen like that. And and, and the man yeah, like I and I knew I did something wrong. And and this beautiful man smiled at me, you know, and I saw him smile and there was such a disconnect with the smile and the feeling of connection and the fear and the disconnection that I felt in my father's body. I remember that you just remind, I've forgotten about that, but I remember it so well. And it's, you know, God, there's so much more to talk about, Sarah, and we have to bring this to a close you're going on tour soon. We're going to have to do another one. We'll get together with Angel and talk about the 400-year project. Oh, yes. Working on. He wanted me to send him a copy of our interview. So, so Hi, Angel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so tell us a little bit. You're going to be going on tour. Can you just tell us how to find out about that? Your, your, um, yes. And your yes. Instagram. Yes, thank you so much, Michael. So my website is mindheartconsulting.com. And then my Instagram is mindheartcollective. And those are the easiest ways to connect with me and find out about the various places and spaces where you can see me talk and 
you know, just a few off of the top of my head. I'm actually, I'm very excited about this one. In February, I will be giving my very first TED Talk in Berkeley. For those of you who will be around, it'll be on February 8th. And there are more details to be announced about that. The following weekend, I will be in San Francisco at the Learning in the Brain Conference presented by Stanford and Berkeley in June at the Global Compassion Summit, again in Los Angeles. And then I'm going to be taking this Science and Social Justice Tour international to Denmark to the International Mindfulness Conference where perhaps you might be able to see Michael and I together. (laughs) And so many more, so many more. So I definitely look forward to everyone that I'll be able to to meet with and and just um, connect with at the heart in person in these places and spaces. Sarah, I just am so grateful. I speak, I know for our listeners, for pulling the curtain back just a little bit and, and the curtain of the heart and just looking and your tireless work of, you know, working with communities and understanding and really taking a deep, honest look at the issues and how we can bring people together and, and bring that collective heart in harmony and coherence. And it's just a, and it's a real honor to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you as well, Michael. Talk to you soon. Yes. Conversations is an independently produced program supported by KVMR 89.5 Nevada City and listener contributions. We are committed to bringing you leading-edge thinking in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, and spiritual fulfillment. If you would like to receive our complimentary newsletter, The Well of Light, make a contribution, or order any of our past shows, go to our website at arewelistening.net.